Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. As I grew up, my favorite number was the number 12. I don't really know why. I, I don't remember any specific reason why I liked it. It was just a number I would always gravitate towards. Now, as I read through the Bible, I think the biblical author's favorite number was the number seven, or any number divisible by seven. It shows up everywhere, from the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation. Sevens are everywhere, and there's a reason for it. The progressive count of one through seven and the accomplishment of achieving that final number is the literary communication of divine completion. Maybe a a better word would be fullness. In the most basic sense, the number seven is used as a figure that represents the Sabbath of God. It's a time of divine presence and rest, like the Garden of Eden. Once a week, or once every seven days, the Hebrew people would cease all work and rest. This was practiced in anticipation of the restoration of God's world, the fullness of God's restful presence, the hope of heaven coming to earth, and the recreation of an Eden-like space. So once a week, the Hebrew people would practice this Sabbath. Then additionally, there would be seven unique festivals within the span of one year. And then once every seven years, there would be an event called the sabbatical year or the year of the Sabbath. And then the ultimate celebration happened once every seventh sabbatical year. So that would be seven times seven, which would be about every 49 or 50 years, depending on how the calendar worked out. So this became a -a once-in-a-lifetime event for most people. The number seven has a significant and rich meaning within the Hebrew Scriptures. And the author of John, who grew up with the Hebrew Bible, referred to today as the Tanakh or the Old Testament, He's using this loaded number to communicate something about Jesus. Throughout his book, he presents seven different miracles that Jesus performed, often referred to in this context as signs. Now, we know from the Synoptic Gospels and from a small notation at the end of this book that Jesus performed much more than seven miracles. So, with this intentional design The author is relying on the weight of the number seven to interconnect its meaning with the person of Christ. Something else that he presents is seven different statements that Jesus made, all beginning with the phrase, I am. 
Now, this, this has a little bit more of a loaded meaning because as Lee taught in the last lesson, God wanted to make his name known. And he told Moses in the book of Exodus, I am who I am. The most immediate observation that we can make from this is that the author of John is portraying Jesus as the fullness of God. The number seven being coupled with the name of God bring two significant meanings together in order to communicate a new thought. This new thought is directly addressed within the first few sentences of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is not shy in his belief about Jesus. Throughout his book, he is presenting Jesus as being the fullness of God. According to John, Jesus is the anticipation of the Sabbath practice. Within John's first chapter, Jesus is referred to as the Word, which we have talked about quite a bit in previous lessons. He's referred to as the tabernacle. He tabernacled with us, which brings to mind the temple tent of God that the people of Israel carried around with them. It's pulling in the comparison of God's presence residing in a tent and God's fullness residing in the human body of Christ. Thirdly, in John chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus is called the Son from the Father. This presents an intimate connection something like a begotten relationship, the fullness of God within this person of Christ. Here at Parable, we believe in the Christian Orthodox confession that God is one living, eternal, omniscient, immutable, omnipotent, holy, omnipresent, and all-glorious God, existing self sufficiently in three sovereign and equal persons. For the sake of a title, we call this the Trinity. You won't find that word anywhere in the book of John or even in the whole Bible because it's something that theologians use to describe this complicated biblical idea. We believe the Trinity is God the Father, the mighty director of the universe, God the Son, who is eternally begotten without beginning and is one essence with the Father, and the Holy Spirit coming forth from the divine essence as a person, eternally from the Father and the Son. Each person in the Godhead is completely and fully God who execute distinct 
but congruent offices in the work of creation, redemption, and holy passion. As John the author said about Christ, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And with the testimony of John the Baptist, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, on Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus is the fullness of God wrapped in flesh. And his divine presence, this incarnation, was not incarcerated by the human body of Jesus Christ. It was not simply contained. It overflowed. As John the Baptist said, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. By the time we reach John chapter 2, we find Jesus manifesting his glory. Or, in other words, as the story presents, an overflowing from an abundance. Empty vessels are filled. A celebration takes place. And most importantly, people believe. In Christ, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And from him came a spring of abundance. John chapter 2 contains the famous story of Jesus' first recorded miracle and then a rambunctious visit to the temple. There's an intentional build-up to these stories. Leading up to this, throughout chapter 1, John has implanted a pattern marked by the phrase, the next day, clearly referencing the pattern of creation in Genesis. Here in John, these next days are not always literal. The first day begins in verse 19, when John the Baptist is questioned by priests and Levites. Day 2 is counted in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The third day is counted in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked as Jesus walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The next explicit count is mentioned in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. By the time we reach chapter 2, verse 1, we find this statement. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. 
these three days are being added to the four days that we just noted. So with the simple math of four plus three, we find that curious number that keeps popping up, seven. With this observation, we would be accurate in saying, on the seventh day, Jesus went to a wedding. This wedding is the setting of the first of the seven signs that John records about Jesus in his gospel. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there are many fascinating questions that arise from this story. Like, how did Mary know about the wine being run dry? That's not something the organizers of the wedding would have advertised. It was culturally shameful to not be able to provide for your guests. Secondly, why did Jesus respond with such a disconnected tone? Thirdly, why did Mary bypass Jesus' response and issue him helpers? The details of this story are noticeably sparse. And that's not by accident. John is writing this story in a very Hebraic manner. It requires a lot of pondering. And in that pondering, you begin to notice several connections. This wedding is occurring on John's seventh day as he mapped it out. And again, remember the importance of the number seven and the buildup that we went through to get to this story. The full presence of God was bodily present on the seventh day. But then we have this puzzling statement that Jesus made about it not yet being his hour. That is the last statement you would expect to hear in a story with this context. The anticipation of the Sabbath is here. The presence of God at a wedding ceremony, a time of celebration, this is the moment. John the Baptist even declared, this is the Lamb of God, and he testified to the Spirit's anointing. Why would this not be his hour? Because even though the full presence of God was bodily present, there was still divine work to be done. John chapter 2, verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. 
When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. (laughs) Notice the intense emphasis on how this created wine was very good. Similar to how the last day of creation concludes, and behold, it was very good. Now, let me point out the vessels that Jesus used for this creation wine. He used six stone water jars that were purposed for Jewish purification rites. This will eventually lead us into the next story as Jesus visits the temple, but it also reaches back to a verse in chapter 1. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This very specific detail in a rather simple story is a commentary on how the empty practices that developed within God's law were now being renewed with the outflowing manifestation of Jesus Christ. The fullness of God was present, an overflowing of abundance. Empty vessels were filled, and people believed. Verse 11 This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This concluding statement is John's main point for this story. Jesus, the Son of God, in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell manifested his glory and produced a result that was very good. Within this story, we have themes from the creation account. We have a commentary on how the spiritual state of mankind is but empty vessels of good practices. We have the weight of the number seven being used and then subverted by Jesus declaring that it was not yet his hour. Because while the full presence of God was bodily present in the person of Christ, there was still divine work to be done. This was the first of his seven signs. In the Gospel of Matthew, the author wrote that Jesus did not come to abolish the Mosaic law but that he came to fulfill it. There was work to be done. And Jesus was prepared to teach like a rabbi, to serve like a servant, and to die like a lamb. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
A little bit later in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. John wrote this gospel for the express purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In my studies, I... I found it fascinating. I, I believe that the Holy Spirit who oversaw and influenced John's writings knew of the eventual connection in the book of Revelation, which John also wrote. He says in Revelation chapter 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of mighty waters, and like the sounds of peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here in John chapter 2, Jesus, the declared Lamb of God, attended a wedding and at this wedding performed his first of seven signs, which all point to the fullness of God residing bodily in the person of Christ. There was work to be done. The empty vessels of Jewish purification rites lead us next to a rambunctious temple visit where Jesus declares, tear this temple down and in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus was not talking about the temple building when he said this, but rather he was talking about his tabernacled presence there in that moment. In John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, at the wedding feast on the seventh day, Jesus provided an overflowing abundance by manifesting his glory and his disciples believed in him thank you for listening to pickled parables if you enjoyed this message please rate us subscribe and share with your friends if you're interested in more things like this check out our secondary podcast called my dusty bible to stay up to date with all things parable follow us on instagram at parable underscore ministries 
and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization, and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.